Um, and I, by the way, listeners, uh, listeners who do not know, I just want to be very, very clear. If you find yourself in a vehicle that has been submerged, do not wait for a magical dolphin man to come break the window and save you. Welcome to Rainbow Colored Glasses, a podcast that looks at queer cinema of the past and asks what it means today. I'm Paul, my guest is Ed, and in this episode we look at the 1988 film The Fruit Machine. There will be spoilers. The story follows two teen boys, Naive Eddie and Street Smart Michael. They visit a gay club where they witness a murder. The killer sees them, so they go on the lam. Then Eddie becomes obsessed with a dolphin at the Wonderland Aquarium a dolphin who appears to him as a sexy naked man. Things get weird. Ed, thank you for agreeing to watch this. How would you describe this film? It left me speechless, I think, a Uh little bit. Um, Though not in a bad way. I think you you may recall that in season one, when you and I and uh, Justin discussed a different movie, I I was probably, I seem to remember, fairly disdainful and that's definitely not where I came down as far as this particular film. I actually found parts of it really beautiful, compelling, and touching. Yeah, I, it was very strange, a very strange film that, honestly, I want to ask. There's, there's so many different people I want to ask if they've seen this film just based on their contemporary work. Like, I see this and I want to ask Guillermo del Toro if he ever saw this before he did The Shape of Water, for instance. <laughs> yeah, just uh, I, I had had no awareness whatsoever of this film. Uh, you always find some interesting uh, material that I just had never heard of before, uh, Paul, uh, which is one, one of the reasons that I love talking with you about these is you definitely broaden my tastes. And this is a weird film. It blends several genres, several. Uh, we've got some slasher horror in here, we've got some buddy comedy, coming of age stuff. We've got the surreal fantasy with the dreams and the dolphin. And we've got these two lead characters who split the split the workload unevenly. Because at first I thought Eddie was the protagonist, the, the naive kid. Because you spend a little more time with him in his head, his his point of view you meet his family you see his dream sequences but watching it again i realized that michael is the active character who sort of gets everything done on their journey he's the one who helps them get out of town he's the one who um ultimately defeats the killer who's chasing them and he's the one who saves the dolphin which in a different sort of film it would be Eddie who does that because Eddie's told from the beginning of the movie, he needs to toughen up. And then the dolphin seems like the one thing that's going to make him stand up for something. But then he ends up passing the, passing the keys over to Michael. So Eddie wants things and Michael does things. Who would, who would you say is the protagonist? I think that I I have to agree with uh, your initial assessment, Paul. And, and, that uh, that has to do with some of the reasons that you named. Uh, even if he is a frustrating protagonist, and in, in my view, we'll talk about this, an increasingly frustrating protagonist as the movie progresses. 
Eddie is indisputably the one from whose point of view we most often are watching things. And he's the one whose interior life the film actually lets us encounter. Uh, Unlike Michael, we see Eddie's dreams and his fantasies and his, his, his delusions in a way that Michael as as interesting a character and is a lot more active a character and one with much more agency as much as he has those characteristics we simply don't we aren't granted that window into his inner life that the film grants us uh for for eddie um so i that's kind of a it's a it's a very technical very technical answer but i I have to say it's eddie just because we don't get that peek into michael's head in the same way we don't we don't see his dreams we don't see his fantasies and even in michael's big scene alone michael's become a kept boy for an opera singer for a brief interlude to raise money and when he breaks off with the opera singer he gives a speech about wanting to take care of eddie exactly uh his his agency all surrounds technically um, his impulses to do things for Eddie, to protect him, take care of him, do things because it would have mattered to Eddie. That said, I, I completely agree with you that Michael is the one who actually gets things done in a way that I, I definitely found my sympathy shifting Surprisingly, I was actually very surprised to notice this happening, but my sympathies between the two characters shifting pretty wildly as the movie proceeded, where I definitely was kind of rooting for this young, innocent dreamer that is Eddie at the beginning. And we have the same name, so of course that probably played a part. But the uh, the fact is he's really, really blind to what it costs other people to keep him that innocent, like that pure. Like I think when people use the phrase too pure, too good for this world, I think that that's an accurate way to describe the character of Eddie. And I don't mean it as a compliment that I guess the opera singer Vincent, I think the character's name is, describes him as simple. I think that that's true. And one of the few times that Michael actually rounds on him and has criticism for him, he says something along the lines of, you shouldn't believe people that that I think Michael sees a lot more clearly than Eddie does, that while you can get pretty far in life just being young and ha- handsome and charming and friendly and just kind of assuming that because you mean well, everybody else does too, sooner or later you're going to meet somebody that doesn't play by those rules and you ought to be ready. And uh, it was very frustrating that, I mean, frankly, as we see the character of Eddie, spoilers everyone, dies as he lived, being... I, I, I don't I the phrase that comes to mind is being like uh, like Tom and the glass menagerie accused of being a uh, what's it a selfish dreamer. He just he's completely blind to what it costs, what it costs Michael specifically for him to be able to live that sort of charmed, protected, completely innocent life. So much of the decisions that Eddie does make revolve around this dolphin. And even before he goes to the aquarium, he's having dreams about the dolphin on his lawn, turning into a man and climbing through his window, seeing him in the mirror in the nightclub. Uh, I I thought of a couple of different things this dolphin could represent. What did you make of it? It's complicated. Um, it's a little messy, which is which is part of the problem, I suppose. I 
think in just the most literal way of some of the theories about how the exotic becomes erotic like as we as we get older that you never know what what sort of jumble of things in your childhood can turn into something that becomes linked to your sexuality and what turns you on which is not my way of saying that this is covertly a bestiality film um <laughs> my uh, eddie is fascinated by the dolphins but i think that what the film is getting at symbolically by having the dolphin keep on transforming into this handsome man or merman as the case may be is that it's not about a sexual fixation on the dolphins themselves but on what they represent in his imagination which is this sort of muscular smooth masculinity um the sort of the grace and strength with which men move or can move in his mind's eye in a medium like water. Uh, And at least that's where I come at it, especially because at first, when we see the dolphins, it's accompanied by, you know, this beautiful classical, you know, soaring opera music. And it makes much of how absolutely, at least from the point of view of Eddie's imagination, sublimely beautiful they are as creatures in their element. And so then I think that, like I said, it's messy. It means a bunch of different things to me watching it. I, I sort of, so that idea of, of masculinity, like strong, graceful, being able to move freely through the water, as opposed to in his mind's eye, you know, during that one dream sequence where he's feeling especially you know, misunderstood by his family. He has this vision where he looks out into his backyard and sees in the backyard, the dolphin, but it's the dolphin beached, um, you know, stuck on land, just sort of floundering around in a little puddle in the backyard. And I think that that metaphor actually gets extended when he goes to the dolphinarium and has this sort of rude awakening as to, well, here's what I had in my head about what these creatures are and and what it was going to be like to come back here. And now I see all the things that I didn't see when I was younger, how sort of tawdry and dingy it is. And then Eddie's very rude to the woman at the aquarium, but then he goes outside and he bonds with this animal rights activist because this film has way too many characters. And he compares himself to the dolphin. When she asks his name, he, he gives the dolphin's name because he sees himself trapped in his small town as the dolphins trapped in the aquarium. And then at the same time, when he's given the chance to flee town with Michael, he says, no, I've, I've got to save the dolphin. Mm. But then he and Michael have a fight. And here's where I feel like something may have been cut out of the screenplay because, and again, it's hard to, it's hard to sum this up concisely, Michael's been sleeping with the opera singer. The assassin beat up the opera singer in sort of a Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire misunderstanding. Eddie thinks Michael beat up the opera singer and he starts slapping him around in the middle of this arcade saying, why is it always violence with you? Is that the only language you can understand? And I'm thinking, where did this come from? Michael hasn't done anything violent. (laughs) Is he channeling his father? Is there a scene we we missed that got cut out here? Where is this coming from? I will say that's one thing narratively as an aside that I almost missed. I 
I guess I made the connection that we are to understand that this assassin figure, I think Echo is the character's name, yes. um, is is who beat up the opera singer and that Michael is being falsely accused there. Um, but it's a near thing. The filmmaking almost doesn't clarify that sufficiently, <laughs> I would argue. I was troubled. Yeah, I was I was troubled by it. I don't know. I don't know that I've got anything deeper to say about it than that necessarily. Well, we've got these two symbols because Eddie's chasing after the dolphin who represents freedom and sexuality and so forth. And he's being chased by Echo, who is ostensibly a gangland assassin who's after them because he wants to get rid of witnesses to this crime. But he also behaves a lot like um, a horror movie villain he can seemingly teleport he can walk very slowly or very quickly depending on how long they need to stretch out a scene and i wondered if he was supposed to represent the aids epidemic because the father gives a speech about how aids is chasing after the gays and it seems like whenever they go any place where the gay community is echo is there silently stalking them so i wondered if there was a parallel that was meant to be drawn there. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I looked it up on the wiki page and uh, the filmmaker is quoted as saying that that is his intent, that the character of Echo is meant to be sort of an allegory for AIDS. I find it an imperfect allegory, but I, I, I guess I could see what he was getting at. I think about things like the mobster who hires him uh, specifically talking about his preference for murdering or abusing you know gay men can see that in sort of the slow relentless pursuit i think about things like if you if you consider the aids epidemic one thing that was true is especially because there wasn't necessarily a lot of understanding about how it spread at first that a lot of things that seem to not make sense necessarily would happen like people who were relatively not very sexual active, sexually active, but wind up being infected and become very ill. Whereas other people who were much more sexually active just happened to not become infected or to not become seriously sick right away. I don't know that even if that's an accurate representation of how it would feel like at the time, I think that that's an unfortunate lens through which to view the pandemic today, just because there's an implication of there's an implication of sort of slut shaming or sex negativity there. If if you're extending that allegory to Michael, like over Eddie's corpse screaming, it's not fair. And the reason that it's not fair is because this pure, perfect, virginal, except for metaphorically, because he swims with the dolphins naked right at the end, person should be dying from the assassin, the age symbol assassin, while Michael still lives, despite despite his protestations and despite how how deeply offensive and wounding he finds it for him to be referred to as a as a rent boy that that is the job that he is doing and michael is preyed upon everywhere he goes in this movie even even in the fruit machine nightclub which he calls a safe haven the the men are perving over him there and he ends up uh having to strip to win the contest to get some to get 30 quid and yeah i hate to be a hater but uh he did not win that dancing contest. <laughs> that was that was a really piss poor display of dancing ability. 
Um, and I felt like the runner-up really got robbed. If yeah, I'm honest. they were a better dancer, but Michael took off his clothes, and that was enough to get Robbie Coltrane to give him the prize. Well, ter- took off his clothes, and also was doing sort of traditionally like like he's when he was wearing clothes, he's dressed in this sort of traditionally preppy way. He's not really dancing so much as doing sort of burlesques of masculine activity, like doing jump rope or sort of shadow boxing around the dance floor to the extent that he does any real moves at all beyond sort of flailing awkwardly around. I think that it's, it was true then and it's true now that youth and beauty is a currency, um, is something that is valued and hungered after and uh, people are willing to lie and hurt other people to get access to it. And at first, that maybe not really sympathize with Michael, but on the other hand, he's the one who, I guess, recognizes that harsh reality and is willing to use it to his advantage. I can't really blame him for doing that based on the rules of the world that were shown in the movie. You know, this is that this is what life is in the movie. And that's why I was getting increasingly frustrated with Eddie is based on the version of the world that we're being shown. One of these people is actually equipped to live in this world and one of them is not. I like the idea of the relationship between these two boys because it was rare in 1988 to have films about gay teenagers, but it's still rare to have films about platonic friendships between queer people. I liked that up until some a confusing declaration of love at the end, uh, the relationship between these boys seems to be... I. I actually thought of um, of mice and men at one point <laughs> when Michael's talking about how he considers it his job to take care of Eddie. Yeah. And I was disappointed at how quick the film was to split them up because I thought it was a much stronger film when they were interacting with each other. But Michael goes into the world of the rich people and Eddie goes into the world of the aquarium and then they don't see much of each other. For the rest of the film, they have that argument, which seems to come out of nowhere. And then they meet up again for the sort of final boss battle in the aquarium with Echo. And even then, Eddie gets attacked first and the camera cuts away from it. And then Michael comes in and has his battle and it perfect poetic justice my favorite idea in the film is that when he knocks echo into the pool it's the dolphins that drown him i love that that's like the best idea i think this movie has and not completely inaccurate by the way a lot of the behavior of the dolphins is based on actual animal behavior it's true that dolphins will sometimes assist swimmers in distress and it's also true that sometimes if they're in a mood they can mob people and prevent them from getting out of the water and eventually uh, they can drown so I thought I thought that was cool. I, I I definitely was maybe ahead of the film a little bit there. I was like, ooh, dolphins, please kill him. And, and then they did. <laughs> um, but and it was an interesting contrast. Here's what I will say. There are times when I was willing to give the film a lot of credit. And then they decided that we were too stupid to not have it explained to us. And so one of those times is he's just swum with the dolphins or he's about to swim with the dolphins and it's magical. And then we cut to shot of elsewhere in the aquarium, a shark circling lazily pan to the left. And there is our land shark, the serial killer uh-huh. uh, staring at the sharks 
equally as blank and designed for killing. See, he's he's like the sharks, and Eddie is like the dolphins. Get it? You know, I um, <laughs> I didn't need it to be underlined for me. Another example is I, I was feeling really really clever, and I was about to, I was I was taking my notes to to come to to discuss this with you, and we get to the Adelphi Hotel, which is where the party is is set. And I basically paused the movie and said, wait a minute, Adelphi, I wonder if that has the same root word as dolphin. And I went down this like wormhole on Google where I discovered that they both do have a similar root word because of the Greek word for womb and that dolphins have that name because they are mammals, they are fish with wombs. And the uh, Adelphi, I think, is is derived from the Greek word for brothers, i.e. from the same womb. Uh, so yes, they do have the same derivation, which I would have felt a lot clever about explaining to you if they didn't say that out loud in the freaking movie, like five minutes after I unpaused it, having looked that up. <laughs> I, I guess uh, that's my own fault is that I wanted to, I wanted to feel really clever and then they explained it to us anyway. Nothing wrong um, with that. Vincent being do- do- Adelphi, Dolphin. I, that, I, yeah, it, like he actually... Neil Bog is goblin spelled backwards. It was it was really, really underlined for us. And now I don't get to feel as clever. It was very disappointing. Uh, not disappointing is that Echo is walking around with an absolute honest to God machete. That's insane. It really you're not kidding when when you say it is an honest to God slasher movie briefly is they they shut the door in the bar while they're trying to get out. And suddenly this. Uh, also phallic, I might add, massive machete covered in blood just like penetrates through the door and almost gets one of them. And uh, I, I, all I can say, by the way, is uh, just before that, Robbie Coltrane in drag has been murdered with a machete. And I just really hope that I also get to die with such amazing last words. Robbie Coltrane's last words being, my, that's a big weapon. Just before getting... <laughs> Chopped up by Echo's machete. Wow. And at one point I do like where we get to watch what Echo's what Echo's evening routine is like. Where he's where he's doing like Tai Chi in these sheer capri pants in his in his hotel room. Yeah, completely necessary. Something that I've often wondered, you know, is what's Echo's home life like? Would you recommend this film today? Absolutely. Uh, I I thought it was weird and beautiful and moving. And yes, at times it's confusing and frustrating, uh, but so are lots of films. Uh, this, And that's the thing is this is an actual film to me. That That's, I guess, finally is uh, it was willing to do surreal symbolism and, and actually get into a character's interior life. I guess uh, it's hard for me not to compare it with the last film we discussed all over the guy that's an example of it's a movie but not a film this is a film nice yeah again i i'm a i'm a sucker for queer coming of age media and there are a lot of tropes that uh it fell into in the late 2000s that can make the stories kind of blend into each other particularly the whole nerd falls for a jock or gay kid mean dad hard for me storyline mm-hmm. and so this this is something completely different it's a piece of genre fiction that happens to focus on two queer teenagers and doesn't involve a romance i like all of that i just wish 
I wish it was telling a cleaner story. Uh, I wish it was more about the relationship between the two boys. And I wish maybe the boys, maybe the boys were slightly stronger actors so that the symbolism didn't have to do so much of the heavy lifting for them. Mm. So that is The Fruit Machine, currently available on Amazon and Tubi, and a strange little piece of queer film history for anyone willing to seek it out. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. Absolutely worth seeing. Not perfect, but but really, really cool and not a film I'd have encountered or even heard of before. Thank you for watching it and discussing it with me. Sure. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thank you for listening to Rainbow Colored Glasses. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Glasses Rainbow. The music you're listening to is Squares, licensed under Creative Commons. If you like us, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.